Hello, my name is Mary. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 86, verses 11 through 13. Teach me your way, O Lord, so that I can walk in your truth. Make my heart focused on only honoring your name. I give thanks to you, my Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever, because your faithful love toward me is awesome, and because you've rescued my life from the lowest part of hell. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Pam, and the New Testament reading is found in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 to 18. On one such journey, I was going to Damascus with the full authority of the chief priests. While on the road at midday, King Agrippa, I saw a light from heaven shining around me and my traveling companions. That light was brighter than the sun. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice that said to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? It's hard for you to kick against a spear. Then I said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are harassing. Get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as my servant and witness of what you have seen and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes, then they can turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are made holy by faith in me. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Sarah. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. 15, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verses 4 through 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am them, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word to us. We ask you now that as we open it up, as we listen to uh, your scriptures being taught, we ask that you would help us to hear what you, by your Holy Spirit, is saying to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you on this Labor Day Sunday. Thanks for being here in church. If we bring the lights up a bit more, I can see your faces a little better. You're looking lovely out there. Last week, we started a series called Complete Joy, and it's a series through a letter in the Bible called Philippians. And Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in this town of Philippi. And so last week, we gave a little bit of background information on Who's this guy, Paul? Well, he, he's, a, he's a person that had a radical conversion. We heard the story being read this morning. We're coming back to that story in a moment. And Paul began to travel and tell people about Jesus. And he arrived in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony. There were some retired Roman soldiers there. There were also uh, some Greeks there. Of course, Philippi was uh, or is a city in Macedonia, kind of in this Eastern Europe uh, location. 
And Paul, the book of Acts tells us the story of Paul meeting a woman named Lydia, a businesswoman who uh, helps, who's curious about this message about Jesus and helps Paul essentially start a Christian community there in Philippi. And then Paul, uh, people start getting saved and people, other people start getting upset about it. Paul gets thrown in jail in Philippi. And so this is the place where Paul and Silas are singing in this Philippian jail and there's an earthquake and the jailer's terrified and Paul says, hang on, hang on, I'm here. Uh, this is what you have to do to be saved. And so that's kind of the beginnings of this church in Philippi. But now Paul is writing this letter some years later, probably in the mid AD 50s, somewhere around there, we think. And we think he's writing it from Ephesus. That's one of the best, that's the, the kind of the hypothesis that I'm most persuaded by. Not in a Roman prison in Rome, but in Ephesus. And there's a guy from this church in Philippi who's traveled to see Paul and brought him some supplies, some food, some clothing, and that was what you needed in the ancient world because you could be stuck in prison until, uh, until there was a court date and you needed people to take care of you. And so Paul writes this letter mostly to thank these people. And so last week we talked about Paul's opening words of joy. You see joy as this theme that comes throughout this whole letter. And Paul opens and he says, look, one of the reasons for my joy is this kingdom companionship. And so last week we talked about not just having the uh, relationships and friendships around you, but the kind of relationships that are made of, the substance of them is the gospel and the kingdom. And Paul says, every time I think about you, I've got joy in my heart. But not just kingdom companions, we talked about a Christ-centered confidence last week where Paul says, look, I know the one who started your story, I know the one who started my story, and I know the one who'll bring it to completion, and that's the reason for my confidence. Well, this morning, we're going to go on just a little bit further in Philippians 1, and we're going to talk about knowledge and insight. Knowledge and insight. So Paul's told these people, these friends of his, he's told them that he's praying for them. He's told them that every time he prays for them, he feels so much joy. Now he's about to tell them what he's praying for. Okay, so you feel joy and gratitude when you pray for us, Paul. That's really sweet and lovely. But what are you asking God for on our behalf? Now, I want to just stop for a moment and just ask you to think about the impression that maybe your friends who don't know Jesus think that Christianity is about. If you were to take a poll of your, you know, an informal poll of your friends or neighbors or coworkers and said, hey, what do you guys think this, this whole Christianity thing is about? Probably number one, they'll say something about Jesus, right? And you'll be like, right? And then they'll say, it's about being loving. And that Christianity is essentially a teaching about being loving. And you'll say, well, that's pretty close. The truth is there are a lot of Christians who would stop solely at that point and say, well, Christianity is just about love. And uh, someone might say, well, it, didn't Jesus say, love God and love others. And so love God, love people. That's sort of the whole Christian life. Why do we need to bother with saying anything else? Well, Paul sure wasted a lot of ink if that was true. Uh, it's not easy to get parchment and, and ink in prison. And if it was all just about love God, love people, and that's the end of the story, why did Paul bother to write these letters? What Paul begins to say to these Philippians is, yes, it starts with love, but love must lead to something else. Love has to develop into something else. And so in verse 9, he says, this is my prayer, that your love might become even more and more rich with knowledge and all kinds of insight. 
And then he says, if, if this happens, I pray this so that you will be able to decide what really matters and so that you will be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. Paul wants these Philippian Christians to know that love must lead to a new way of thinking. That's the banner statement over the whole message this morning. Love must actually lead to a new way of thinking. See, the problem with just saying, well, love is all you need, or just love God, love people, is we start to press a little bit closer and say, well, what do you mean by that? What does loving God look like? What is God like? What does loving people look like? What does it actually mean? Is it more loving to act this way toward your neighbors, or is it more loving to act this way? And if there weren't finer points to this, if there wasn't an actual rethinking that has to take place, then everyone can just do whatever they want and say, well, I'm just being loving, bro. Don't be so judgmental. I'm being loving. And this is the, the age that we live in where the only thing people know about Jesus is something about love. And so then we just say, well, just be lovey. And we don't know what else to say. And Paul says, let me tell you something. Your love must actually overflow. The ESV says, I'm praying for your love to overflow into a new way of thinking. One of the problems we have today in Western Christianity is we have people who are very happy to have a redeemed soul without bothering to have a renewed mind. We have people who have said, oh, look, we never really change the way we live because we focus solely on a redeemed soul and forget about a renewed mind. And so we think, oh, this is so great. Jesus loves me. He's forgiven me. He saved my soul. He's redeemed my soul. But do I really have to do all that other stuff? Isn't that just extra credit? Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fine, right? This is a pass-fail thing, isn't it? Like heaven or hell, that, that's all that matters. So I got a redeemed soul, so why do I need a renewed mind? And Paul says, listen, if you are following Jesus, you're going to have to rethink everything. You're going to actually have to engage your mind in this. You're going to actually have to work at this. And of course, Paul would say this because think about his own life. And this is why our New Testament reading this morning was that story of Paul recounting his own Damascus Road experience, his moment that many people refer to as his conversion. Paul was a person, first named Saul, who loved God, quote unquote, and in the name of loving God was persecuting these followers of Jesus. So Paul is the he knows, maybe better than anyone else, he knows that you can claim to be loving God and yet living in a way that is actually against him. I'm going to say that again for the people in the back. You can claim to be loving God and actually living in a way that is against him. Paul discovered that the hard way. He's like, I love, out of my zeal for God. Paul wasn't persecuting Christians because he was a terrible pagan. Paul was persecuting Christians out of his zeal and love for God. And then one day on the Damascus road, he gets this vision of Jesus, and he says, whoa, what's going on, Lord? And Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul all of a sudden realizes that to be living this way is to actually be living against who Jesus is. So Paul spends a few years, with some help of some other teachers, rethinking everything. And he starts to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe I was, if, if that's what God is like, then wait a minute, this is what it means to put your faith in him and this is what grace looks like. And, and he's got some of the right threads from studying the Old Testament, but he doesn't know how to pull all the threads together. And it's in Jesus that he begins to see this. So Paul understands that if we're gonna experience a transformation in our life, 
It's about more than a redeemed soul. It's going to take a renewed mind. And some of you are like, darn. I was hoping I wouldn't have to think too hard about all this stuff. You're going to have to think. And so in verse 9, I want us to focus now for the, for the chunk of the sermon here on these two words. He says, this is my prayer, that your love might become even more and more rich with knowledge and all insight. What do these words mean? What is knowledge? Is knowledge just like generic, you know, like knowing stuff, like you got to learn some trivia, some general info? What does Paul mean by knowledge? Actually, Paul uses a word here that is not just the general word for knowledge. He uses a word that in, in, in many of his letters specifically refers to the revelation of who Jesus is. In fact, later on in this very letter in Philippians 3, Paul will say, I'm pressing on so that I might know Jesus. I want this revelation knowledge of Jesus. I don't want to memorize a fact sheet about Jesus. I don't want to just have sort of general info on life and how to do this and how to do that. I, I, I want a revelation knowledge of who Jesus is. What is knowledge? Knowledge is rethinking everything in the light of who Jesus is. It's rethinking everything in the light of this person. Think about Paul for a moment. He says, okay, I have this picture of God and I, I've got it because I've immersed myself in the Old Testament scriptures and it's all there, but now it's like, click, it's coming to focus a little bit more. So there's part of what we mean here when we talk about knowledge, part of what we mean is a word that, that people refer to as theology, our belief about God. Now, this is why it always makes me nervous when people just refer to a God generically. Well, this is our God-given right, or this is a God-ordained, and they say this generically, and I always want to say, well, which God do you mean? Because do you mean generically the being in the sky, or do you mean the God revealed in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord of the world? Because if, we talk, if we're talking about God as in Jesus, the Father of Jesus, the way, this is the way Paul refers to him, then then we've got to get the picture a little bit more in focus. And when you think about who Jesus is, it actually makes you rethink other concepts. Okay, let's just pick a few examples here. Let's say leadership. So oh, I love leadership, love, love uh, thinking about leadership and strategies, all that's great. I love that stuff too. I have a master's in, in, in business management, so I love that stuff. I'll geek out on reading some of these things or watching TED Talks or whatever. But if I'm not also funneling all of my theories of leadership through the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, then I'm not yet thinking Christianly. Does that make sense? Are you with me? That's not yet thinking, because what we want to do is say, well, God believes in leadership, and so I've got a God-given calling to be a leader, so I'm just going to lead. And then we go to some other source, Steve Jobs or whoever, to say, now this is what leadership looks like. So, now, wait a minute. Let's think everything through the lens of who Jesus is. So you say, well, well, Jesus, let's see, Jesus, Paul will say in Philippians 2, did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became the servant. And you're like, huh, that changes my idea of leadership a little bit. That changes my notion of how things are supposed to work. So all of a sudden, everything gets flipped on its head. The other night, and I share this with permission from Nora, our second born, the other night we were having a family conversation around dinner and I think Holly had kind of um, sparked the question about um, 
uh, how to make decisions about jobs and careers. And, and it was a great conversation and people were contributing factors to it. And someone said, well, one of the kids said, well, I think one of the factors should be that you, you, you should choose a career path that can provide for you and provide for your family. And like, yeah, that's good. That's sensible. And then someone else said, we should also pick something that goes along with something you enjoy and your passions. That's all true. All factors. Correct. And Nora was just kind of listening there, and she's sort of our internal processor, and others might be blabbing their opinions. <clears throat> and, and, and she's just sitting there, and, and she's saying, what? That? And I said, what's wrong, Nora? She said, it just doesn't seem like a Christian way of thinking yet. And I thought, oh, yeah, here we go. This is good. You know, well, what, what, what do you mean? She said, well, shouldn't we also say, God, what, do you, what are you calling me to do? Shouldn't calling be a part of our decision-making process? And I thought... Yes, it should. Very good, you know. Uh, have some ice cream. No, I just kidding. We didn't say that. But this is, this is a part of the thinking process where you say, I, I'm not just going to rethink my theology, but I'm going to think theologically through everything, through leadership, through power, through freedom, all of the concepts that we might have. We're going to say, I've got to rethink this in light of who Jesus is. Now, the next word Paul uses is the word insight. What is insight? The, 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 the pure sort of definition of the word gives you the sense that insight is moving from tunnel vision to a wider perception. Insight has to do here with a widening of your field of vision, which is very interesting when you think about Paul, because Paul sees Jesus, and first he's blinded. He can't really see. And then, boom, it's like he gets to see in a brand new way. And did you notice how Paul was narrating his conversion experience in Acts? And he says, God called me to open the eyes of other people so that they can see. So Paul's letters are all about helping followers of Jesus to say, look, Jesus is not just the light. He's the light by which you now, boom, see everything differently in. You need to take in a broader field of vision. What is insight? Insight is discerning how to live like Jesus in our specific context. Actually discerning. Well, what does this mean for this decision and this decision? Now, I'm not talking about like, you know, you know, itty bitty choices like oatmeal or scrambled eggs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the real stuff that you're wrestling with in your life. Should I make this decision or that decision? How should I handle this colleague? How, what should I do about this relationship? How do I discern? And it's not always clear. Sometimes we kind of expect the Bible to be like this rule book that will just give us all the answers, you know. <clears throat> Topical preaching makes us sometimes think that you could open the Bible by a subject index and say, okay, what to do in financial situations? Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. There it is. Like, we're, we're, it's not exactly organized that way. Nor, are, nor is the Bible meant to be a book of rules that just always apply. And you're like, well, sure it is, Glenn. The Old Testament contains a section called the law. Yes. But first of all, that word law actually really means teaching or instruction, not rules per se, though there are some rules. But did you know there's another section of the Old Testament called wisdom books or wisdom literature? That's because when the people of God began following God and they said, God, we need some guidelines. And God says, yes, here are some laws about this and here's what that means for this. Here's some ceremonial laws and here's some sacrificial laws and here's some other things about morality and how you are to live. And then he says, but you know what? You're gonna need wisdom. So here's a bunch of stories and sayings to help you think through how to actually live. And they're like, huh, but that's not so clear. No, 
And, and I know what you're thinking. You're like, come on, Glenn. Don't, don't. Proverbs, a proverb a day keeps the devil away. It's 31 chapters. Proverbs is wonderful. But did you know that even within the Proverbs, there is conflicting instruction? Within the same chapter, back-to-back verses, one of the Proverbs says, do not rebuke a fool in his folly lest he hate you. And then the very next verse says, you must rebuke in a, folly, a fool in his folly lest he persist in his ways. And you're like, I'm so confused. What do I do? I got so many fools in my life and I don't know what to do. Should I rebuke or not rebuke? Should I comment on their Facebook post or not comment on their, should I really take the, right? I mean, this is every day. You're like, I should correct that. No, I shouldn't correct that. Why? I should say something. No, I shouldn't say something. And you're like, Proverbs, tell me what to do. And there's these two verses that says, do rebuke and don't rebuke. And you're like, nah. Because the goal of the Bible is not to give us easy answers to every situation, but to invite us to discern what it looks like to live as this kind of person in your own kind of context. Dallas Willard once said something like this when he was talking about discipleship. He said, discipleship is about the choices Jesus would make if he was living your life. And you're like, well, I don't know that. Right, but that's why we have to discern it. And for some of you who want to believe that there's only one right way, this could really stress you out. And Paul includes a kind of discernment here to say, look, when you discern, it's going to help you separate what matters from what doesn't matter, and it's going to help you in the specific situations. I want to break this down a little bit further. How does this kind of discernment help us? I think this kind of discernment rescues us from at least three dangerous tendencies. Okay, so hang with me for a moment. I just want to outline three dangerous tendencies that actually discernment, wisdom and discernment um, can help us avoid. The first tendency is to universalize. What I mean by this is to apply all ethical instructions as if they are universal rules. Okay, I'll give you an example of this. Um, a Christian should never drink alcohol. Mm, but what if you're visiting another church and they have wine for communion? We don't, by the way. We have non-alcoholic wine. So you don't have to worry about that burden here, right? A Christian, you can laugh. It's okay. A, a Christian should never watch R-rated movies. Oh, and then The Passion of the Christ came out several years ago. Like, oh, it's rated R. Is this one an exception? What do I do? Or one that has been a subject of conversation throughout church history. St. Augustine said, it is always wrong to lie. But then you had Corrie ten Boom and others who lied about sheltering Jews. Well, is that, what, how do I? So one of our temptations is to apply all ethical instructions like they are universal rules. You should never, you should always. But the other mistake is to overly particularize. Particularize is to deny the validity of any principles. Oh, there's no principles. This is just all relative. And I don't know what might be right for you, may not be right for me. And if you think you should make that choice with your boyfriend or girlfriend, then that's your choice. I can't say it's wrong. You do you. I'll do me. We'll each have our own truth. Can't do that. Otherwise, Paul was really wasting ink, right? Here he is in his letters. These are, his letters are not just pastoral advice. They're also considered holy scripture. It comes to be regarded as the word of God. So what does that mean? That, 
It's, we're not just dealing with particulars. There are some principles. There are things we're supposed to say, well, this is kind of a thing. Like, Christians don't ever do this. Christians do always do this. But let me tell you the third danger that discernment can keep us from or rescue us in the midst of. And that is the tendency to tribalize. By tribalize, I mean framing everything through a lens of us versus them. One example of how we show this, how this shows up in our day, in our culture, is it goes something like this. Bill believes X. These other people also believe X. And these other people believe all kinds of other dangerous things. Therefore, Bill is a dangerous person. Okay? This is, by the way, the logic when people say, Christians believe Jesus is the only way. Other Christians who believe that are also violent and hateful. Therefore, all Christians are violent and hateful. You see how that goes? And we say, well, wait a minute, that, that is a sorting kind of thing that is lumping. Or we say, this person believes this view, and this view belongs with this camp. And this camp is wrong. Therefore, this view is wrong and this person is wrong. Now, I'm just prepping you for a long political season. <laughs> Lord, help us. But this stuff happens. And so you say, well, this person does not believe in abortion. Some other people I know who don't believe in abortion are terribly hateful and picket um, uh, Planned Parenthood clinics. Therefore, all people who think this must be unloving, uncaring people. Now, you don't like that kind of logic, right? But we sometimes will do that the other way around. This person thinks that maybe we could revisit the subject of universal background checks for gun control. Oh, other people who believe in universal background checks are flaming liberals. Therefore, this person is a flaming liberal. Little less little less loud in here now. Now it's really quiet in this Baptist church. <laughs> Tribalism is when we insist on sorting people into camps instead of discerning an issue one at a time or a case by case. Well, all, all views on poverty are social justice. Those are social justice warriors. It says, no, no, no. All views on parenting or family values are crazy archaic. So we Wait, we've, we've, we've just lumped into camps. And Paul says, we can do better than that. You can discern. You can let your love lead you to discernment. And discernment will keep you from overly universalizing, overly particularizing, overly tribalizing, okay? Verse 10, Paul says, this is what's gonna happen. I pray this so that, this is the result, you'll be able to decide what really matters and so you will be sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. So many times in Paul's letters, he's saying, look guys, these are the things that really matter. Hey guys, these are the things that really matter. Yes, included in this is, are these kinds of behaviors and morality and, and marriage and sexual ethics and all of that. But then there's some other stuff over here about food offered to idols and holy days and he's like, mm, you're gonna disagree on that but you can still be one church family together. Listen, friends, we don't want to be the kind of congregation that is homogenous about every social issue. Some things you're gonna be like, hey, these are the main things, and then you're gonna be like, these are things that I'm passionate about, but I know that other 
followers of Jesus are thinking through the lens of who Jesus is and arriving in a kind of a different place than me about this stuff. So now what? Now what do we do about that? But here's why I think this is important. Paul names both knowledge and insight. And I want to go back to that screen that shows you what knowledge is and what insight is. Paul names both of these things because both knowledge and insight matter. Let's use some other words for this. Let's call this theology and let's call this ethics. Theology and ethics. And so in a sense, we need both. But Christians... We want to separate them. So we say, well, I got my theology right. Why does it matter about how I live? So you can hear this on uh, the side of people who say, well, I, 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 look, we believe in the creed. We believe all these things. We say all these things about Jesus. So why does it matter if our view of marriage or sexuality is different than the Orthodox church or than the historic church? And we'll say, because the two belong together. You can't have orthodox theology and unorthodox ethics. You can't have the faith of the apostles without the life of the apostles that they call us to live. Does that make sense? You can't separate the two. You can't say, well, I got my checklist. I've said the prayer. I'm doing the stuff. Why do I actually need to live differently than the world? Because Paul says theology and ethics actually belong together. Knowledge and insight. Both of those things belong together. The final phrase of this prayer is in verse 11 where Paul says, I pray that you will then be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes from Jesus Christ in order to give glory and praise to God. Listen, Paul wants the result of our life to be righteousness. This challenges our kind of easy believism where we just say, well, I believe in Jesus, I'm fine, does it matter how I live, who cares? Paul says, look, if you've got knowledge and insight, if you've got revelation and discernment, if you've got theology and ethics, the result is your life is going to have the fruit of righteousness. You're going to live in a certain way. You are going to live differently. Jesus does call us to righteous living. It matters. But, he says, the fruit of righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. And that's how we can give glory and praise to God. At the end of the day, people are going to look at your life and not say, man, you are amazingly disciplined. No, they're going to look at your life and say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because how did you end up being so different than how you were when I used to know you? Right? That's the idea. Paul says this fruit, we do want this fruit. But the fruit of righteousness comes from the roots Jesus gives. Jesus is the root that produces the fruit of righteousness. Our gospel reading this morning comes from John 15, where Jesus says, look, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. You, you can't have this kind of life without a connection to me. And sometimes we think that abiding maybe is like passive. You just gotta be in Jesus, just kinda chill, hang out with Jesus. But all of the New Testament wants us to know that this communion with Jesus, abiding with Jesus, is personal and it's proactive. It is both of those things. So we're closely walking with Jesus and we're saying, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, give me insight and discernment about this situation here. How should I handle this relationship? How should I handle this thing? And it's not like you might get a voice from heaven saying, do this. You might not get that. But as you begin to reflect on who Jesus is, it might become clear to you and you might say, you know what? I think I'm going to go here instead. I think I'm going to make this choice instead. And I think I'm going to... And 
at the end of it all, the goal is not that we all have, some are, some are living lousy lives and some are leaving, living good lives, but oh well, we all ended up in heaven. No, no, no. Paul says, look, the goal is that we all have the fruit of righteousness. That no matter where the, the, the small things that maybe we disagreed on, we all arrive at the central place of saying, we, we've got the fruit of righteousness. Our lives have begun to resemble Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the reason that fruit exists in us. Amen? So this morning, it, it, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting sermon because it's not the kind of sermon that you can say, well, now go and apply it. These three things. It's the kind of sermon that really invites you into more wrestling, more prayerful, abiding, close with Jesus kind of wrestling. Say, okay, God, what should we do in this situation? God, what is the choice that we should make? God, how would I make a decision that's maybe different than my colleagues at work? How would I resolve this situation? So would you bow your heads with me as we begin to come to the table this morning? For some of us, this may be a moment where the Lord is inviting us to repent, to say, gosh, you, you haven't bothered to rethink anything. You've just sort of said yes to Jesus, but then you kind of went back to cruise control with everything else in your life. And, and this is a moment to say, God, I, I need to repent and rethink. I need to change my mind on, on, on something. And others of you, there's, a, there's an invitation here to say, God, how can I welcome the nearness of your presence? How can I abide in you so that this fruit would result? Let's just sit in this moment with the Lord.